Well, good morning. It is uh, a real privilege and a joy to be here. My name is uh, Steve Brower. Uh, my family, obviously, is here with me. My wife, Heather, over here. Uh, and then we have four children. Uh, one of them you maybe have seen already. That's our oldest, Grant. Grant is one of the contenders. And so it's a blessing to be here for a family uh, camp with him. And then we have three other uh, children as well. Um, we have my daughter, Grace, and then uh, Micah and Mariah. And my folks are here as well, John and Marilyn Brower. And so it's really a blessing to come um, and to spend family camp with you all. Um, I have been a pastor for a number of years. Um, I graduated uh, from college and became a youth pastor for two years in Wisconsin. Um, and then uh, moved to Minnesota, actually to the place that we grew up, which was Owatonna, Minnesota. And uh, we were there as an assistant pastor for six years. Um, and then for the last 15 years, I have been uh, the uh, senior pastor at uh, First Baptist Church in St. Francis, Minnesota. Uh, that's about 45 minutes north um, of the Twin Cities. And so those of you from Muscatine, I understand, you might have come actually a little bit farther than we did. Isn't that ridiculous? Um, but we came down south, and you came um, up uh, from the south, uh, and so we kind of met in the middle uh, here at family camp. Uh, it's uh, really been a joy to be connected to IRBC. Um, we have uh, been here um, other years. This is really, I think, our first time we've ever been at family camp one, and obviously, Family Camp One is way better. Amen? I mean, there's no, there's no question. Um, I can tell you that uh, with a straight face. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, but uh, Family Camp uh, has uh, really been a delight for us. You know, it's, it's, it's really a tremendous thing what God is doing um, here uh, at, in, at IRBC, uh, but also within your, your lives, within your families. Um, it's a joy to see people that are committed to say, let's take some time, and just like Pastor Dave was talking about, right? Let's take some time and let's commit it to the Lord. Um, I love his picture of the feast days, uh, tabernacling with God. It's like, let's take some time, let's set it aside, let's have some fun, but let's also allow for our souls to be refreshed. Um, let's allow for there to be a genuine refreshment, which isn't just physical. We all need that sleep. Uh, relaxation, a break from the norm, uh, but also then time in his word and just pouring into the word of God and letting the word of God pour into us. Uh, and so my, my goal, uh, my uh, desire as much as is within me um, is to facilitate that uh, throughout the services that I get the privilege of speaking at. Um, we are going to be uh, embracing a uh, book of the Bible uh, that might not be normal uh, for family camp, uh, and that's uh, an Old Testament book, one of the minor prophets, um, Haggai. Uh, and so we're going to be spending uh, a, our time, all of our time, in the book of Haggai. Uh, and there's several reasons that we're able to do that. Um, one, we're able to do that in such a way uh, that we're able to cover the entire book. How many times do you get a chance to do that in family camp, right? Uh, so my, my heart, my desire is that as we dig into this, we're able to really understand and see um, what the book is about to let it minister to our hearts. I think we face some challenges, though. Uh, one of the challenges is that it's an Old Testament book. 
Um, and so we have to be able to cross that divide. Uh, and so that means that we have to um, really think through uh, what this would have meant to them uh, in uh, that time period, and then how the cross has maybe changed the emphases uh, and has altered our understanding in a way that's really practical to us. I don't anticipate this to be tremendously heavy lifting, uh, but it is a little bit different, right? Um, so for me as a preacher, it's a little bit risky because I'm like, I don't know you folks and you don't know me. Uh, and so there's a question of, okay, how well will this go? Can I communicate this clearly? Uh, will we have um, a, a way to handle this well? And I think we will, uh, but I'm just being upfront about the challenges that we face. Um, there is so much tremendous good in this book. Uh, and God has given it to us, not so that we can ignore the Old Testament, so that we can understand it and apply it. It's so powerful and practical to our lives. Uh, and so my prayer is that as we dig into it throughout the week, um, it will become more and more alive um, in our lives. Uh, this first message, though, is set up for that. So this is not your typical Sunday morning message. Um, because I am preparing and I'm laying the foundation uh, for fruit that we will reap later on in the week as well. Um, we have to understand what's happening uh, in order to really be able to apply it well. Um, so this, this first uh, message is more of an introduction, um, even as the, the PowerPoint reveals. Uh, and I think I left my clicker uh, down there, so I'd better come grab that. Grant's going to grab it and bring it up. Thank you. Thank you, Grant. Uh, and so we're going to approach this a little bit differently than we would a lot of times um, with a, a message. We're going to kind of walk through and ask questions, even as you can tell in your notes. Um, in the notes, I filled in all of the blanks. Uh, maybe you noticed that. You say, man, there's no blanks uh, in the notes. What's going on? How am I going to pay attention? Uh, I don't have any blanks to guess on. Well, there's lots of white space, and my heart is that you fill in that white space, right? Uh, that as we go through it, you'll be like, oh, I see how that applies or, or what is being said there, and so you can just um, add that in. So don't, don't freak out um, because there's no blanks that are there. Um, as we begin to um, start to work through um, this whole book of Haggai, uh, let me just identify a couple things. Haggai, it's only two chapters and 38 verses. Man, that is a small amount of material. Only Obadiah uh, is shorter um, as far as a minor prophet. Uh, but really what we find in the book of Haggai is we have six prophecies. There are six prophecies and they're in a balanced pattern and it, it makes it feel a little bit more like four prophecies. Uh, the dates in Haggai are helpful from a structural standpoint. They give us clues which shape in a clear way the content of the book. Uh, and so really you have all of this like extra biblical material like Babylonian texts and new moon tables that are calculated from astronomical data. And it's possible for us to get the dates that were given in Haggai accurate to our calendar within one day. Isn't that kind of fun? Um, that we're able to see these dates and go, we know exactly within one day when that would have occurred, what that would have looked like. And it also helps us 
to understand that we are talking about a very short period of time. So from the beginning of Haggai to the end of Haggai, we aren't talking about very long. We're talking about August 29th, 520 BC to December 18th, 520 BC. Uh, That's all that the book of Haggai covers. Um, That's what the prophecies deal with. The prophet Haggai, you say, what did he do the rest of his life? Well, I'm sure he continued to minister. Uh, But this is what we've been given from the Lord. It is this section of time. And so you can see the dates that are there. Um, You have chapter 1, verse 1. It begins there on August 29th. We have another prophecy, September 21st, then October 17th, and then December um, 18th. Uh, And so it it works through each of these passages or each of these time frames uh, for us to be able to understand the the fullness of the book. Um, Haggai's first message, uh, which we're going to cover, this is the introduction. We really have four messages um, after the introduction. The first message, though, is it's time to rebuild the temple. The second message, and we'll cover all these, so you don't need to write these down per se. The second message is that the glory of the rebuilt temple is going to surpass Solomon's temple. That is an unbelievable statement. The rebuilt temple, the glory is going to surpass Solomon's temple. Even right now you're going, wait, but it, but it didn't. <laughs> um, and, and Haggai is going to talk about that. The third message um, is that disobedience produces defilement, but obedience brings blessing. And then the fourth message is that God, Yahweh, is raising up a new leader. Um, so that's the, that's the content of the book uh, in, in total. Now, when we think about the question of who is Haggai, um, and sometimes if you have a study Bible or you're, you're spending time really digging into a book, maybe at the beginning of a study or something like that, um, it's really a, it's, it's, in, it's enlightening, it's helpful um, to kind of figure out who it is who's writing the book. Um, and regarding the biographical information of Haggai, we are given nothing, absolutely nothing. Uh, that's a bit unusual. Uh, there is no mention of the region from which he came from. Uh, there is no mention of his family line. Uh, eleven times his name is referenced in Scripture, but in all of those eleven times we, we learn nothing of his personal history. And it would seem that the absence of family connection, um, of personal information, is intentional. It's kind of serving the literary purpose of underscoring this truth. He's a prophet of Yahweh, and he has a message from Yahweh. So the fact that Scripture tells us zero about him is really to emphasize this is a guy from God. (laughs) Uh, And his background isn't important. He is simply carrying a message uh, from God. Now, Haggai is remembered outside of this book uh, because of his vital role in kind of rallying the Jewish community to rebuild the temple. And so the Jewish people really revere Haggai because he did something that was massively significant uh, to the entire nation um, and to, you know, the entire Jewish people. And so he continues, though, um, to be someone that we know very little about um, other than uh, what he reveals within this book. Uh, why is Haggai a minor prophet? We could ask the question, why is Haggai perhaps the most minor of the minor prophets? 
Well, compared to some of the other prophets, uh, the message and ministry of Haggai appears simple and materialistic, that he's trying to get them to build something. Um, and there is little in the way of you know, ethical emphasis. There's little in the way of elevated theology. It's like, what are we learning that is new? Um, all of that stuff, there's little there. Uh, but to, to evaluate Haggai in, in a manner like that is a little bit unfair. Um, we could ask this question, did Haggai faithfully represent that which God had shared with him? God had laid a message out for him. Did he faithfully lay it out? And I think we would say, yeah, he did. It would appear so. Haggai received from Yahweh a prophetic word uh, that was destined to be unpopular. It was, it was destined to be abrasive, even restrictive. And yet he relentlessly repeated the message and he pressed the people to respond in an obedient manner. And ultimately, that's exactly what they did. And so Haggai ends up being one of the most successful prophets in the Old Testament. Say, man, that's a bold statement. But just think about it for a moment. Everything that Haggai commanded the people to do, they did. Well, that's pretty successful. You know, we think of one of the major prophets. You think of Jeremiah. I mean, what we know about Jeremiah is much greater, and the amount of material we have from Jeremiah is much greater. And yet, in the midst of it all, we would look and say, well, what exactly did Jeremiah accomplish? <laughs> and it's like, well, very little compared to what Haggai accomplished. You say, where did he come from? Again, we don't know. Um, Haggai could have been part of the exiles returning from Babylon, or he could have been part of the rural population that remained in Israel um, after the deportation. But regardless, God called him uh, to be his spokesperson. As one com commentator put it, God calls some people for spot jobs. And it's like, that's Haggai. Uh, that's him to a T. Uh, so what is the historical context of Haggai? As we begin to dig into this, um, let's try to set our mind upon that. Let's, let's wrap our minds around it. Um, as the 6th century begins, uh, we find ourselves in really uh, the waning years of the Israelite monarchy. Uh, Israel is falling apart. And if you think of the two kingdoms, Israel on the north and Judah on the south, um, and Israel is starting to fall apart. There's tension that's mounting between Israel and that nation to the east that is rising in power, great Babylon of old. And this leads eventually to a military conflict. King Nebuchadnezzar uh, invades Israel and he lays siege to Jerusalem in 605 BC. Israel doesn't stand a chance. And he easily wins. And many Israelite nobility are taken into captivity to Babylon. Can you think of any names? Who is taken to captivity? What are some names? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Anybody have their Hebrew names? Just kidding. I mean, you might, but I'm just kidding. Uh, and so they, they are taken. Um, more people are deported than just that, but certainly they are taken and then you have a second deportation from Israel to Babylon in 598 BC. And then you have this final blow. And that final blow was 587 or 586, right around there, when Nebuchadnezzar's forces sacked the city of Jerusalem 
and they did something that was shocking. Um, it was the very reason that Jeremiah, Prophet Jeremiah, had said, hey, you know what you guys need to do? Babylon's coming, you need to give up. Don't fight, just go. And that seemed like a really bad idea to them, but it was from God, and they didn't do it. And what Jeremiah said would happen, happened. And what was it? It was the biggest deal uh, that had happened in a long time. The temple was destroyed. Uh, you know, the temple had been the, the center of Israelite life for almost 400 years. Now think about that from a, a standpoint of our history. Where was America 400 years ago? <laughs> right? 400 years, the temple had been the center of Israelite life and worship. Um, and you think about the impact of that, okay? Everything revolved around the temple because everything was supposed to revolve around God. And if the temple is destroyed, what happens to God? And how could there really be a situation where God would allow the temple to be destroyed? That's why Jeremiah the prophets, that's why his message to Israel, it was so hard to believe because it's like, but God's real. And how would he allow the temple to be destroyed? There's no way. That's his home. But yet that's exactly what happened. Uh, and it's so shocking. It changed everything. And the surrounding landscape of Judah was decimated and it was rendered inhospitable to both human and animal life. The protective walls of Jerusalem, they were completely demolished. The royal palace, the common residences destroyed by fire, every building of any significance within Jerusalem was destroyed. I, it just, it, the, the, the immensity of it had to have been shocking. And how significant was all of this? Okay, as, as a result of the loss of the temple, it's no longer possible for the nation of Israel to worship Yahweh according to any of the laws of the Bible that relate to the temple. And a large portion of the community was either dead or were in exile in Babylon. I just want us to feel the weight of this. Um, this, is, this would be like, and it's, I, I hate making these comparisons, right? Uh, but this would be like a foreign nation invading America and putting the entire country underneath their thumb, um, taking whatever they want, destroying major areas of influence, um, and then deporting a bunch of people. Uh, it, it's just, it's, it's really hard, I think, for us to wrap our minds around what this would have felt like. Uh, but that's what's going on. That's what they are feeling. Uh, that's what all of this uh, is doing. Um, I obviously did not do a good job here um, of clicking through uh, the PowerPoint. But these are all the things that we just talked about. And it kind of leads and points towards Psalm 132, verse 14. This is God saying, This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. He's talking about the temple. And it's just shocking to think about what all of this would have felt like. Now, Haggai's prophetic ministry began in 520. Um, what happened is all these people were deported to Babylon, and then, uh, and we're going to talk about it in just a moment, but then they began to um, have some journeys back, and some exiles would return. 
Um, but as they would return, uh, you think about what that was like. You would come from Babylon, a foreign country. You'd come back into Israel, um, and Jerusalem is still destroyed. Um, it's slowly rebuilding. Uh, the temple is still gone. Um, everybody is, is dirt poor. Uh, and it's like, this is not the same. Uh, it just would have felt painful. Uh, it it would have felt almost as if, and I, I really think they would have felt this way, it would have felt like God isn't there. That they're coming back, and it's like, where's God? Where is he? Uh, because all of this happened. God has abandoned us. And so Haggai's prophetic ministry, uh, it's, it began almost 20 years after the first exiles returned from Babylon. 20 years, so, so two decades. And those, those short decades would have been extraordinarily difficult for those first returning exiles. They were able to return to the promised land, but what they found when they returned was hardship because they would have experienced agricultural hardship and economic adversity. Um, other people who had started up different things, um, some of the land that they used to have um, was being controlled by other people. They would have faced opposition from neighboring peoples. They would have faced internal division. It was a chaotic time. And for those returning to Jerusalem, whatever their hopes were when they were leaving Babylon and they were coming to the promised land, wherever their hopes were, when they got there, they probably looked around and said, this is it. <laughs> It's like, man, this is not good. Like, we, we've got a lot of work to do. Um, this is nothing like what it used to be. You know, that first return from Babylon happened under the policies of Cyrus, the king of Persia. And that in and of itself is so amazing, isn't it? Uh, because God did something unique there. Cyrus built a name for himself as a leader who not only permitted but encouraged the worship of national deities. Um, so don't, don't buy into any kind of thinking that Cyrus was somebody who loved God. He did not. But what God had done is he had put somebody into power who said, you know what, as a good political strategy, we ought to let all of these nations that we have conquered, we ought to let them worship their national deities because it's not a huge deal. If they worship them, we still are in control. And so God places Cyrus into a position of power in order to bring his people back. But just understand what this would have looked like. Without seeing behind the veil, without looking with eyes of faith, it doesn't look like God's doing it. It looks like Cyrus is doing it. And so you have to look at it with eyes of faith to go, okay, behind a frowning, what's the term? Uh, I just lost it. There's a song about that, but okay, it's gone. Uh, but the idea would be, um, they would look at it and, and behind what appears to be a negative situation, there is a smiling providence. Um, that, that, that's the idea, uh, but it's all faith. And so you come back to Jerusalem, everything's still decimated, and you say, I think God is in this. <laughs> but it's an act of faith to believe it, right? But it really was God because he was turning the heart of the king to allow something that was unique to let these conquered people return to their land. So where does Haggai then fit uh, into the big picture of the Bible, uh, the redemptive ark? Um, you know, God had promised to Adam and Eve that there would be a son who would crush the head of Satan. 
and provide redemption. Um, that was that promise way at the beginning, right? God had promised to Abraham that he would make of him a great people, that he would preserve for them a promised land, that he would use the people of Abraham to bless all the nations and bring about redemption. God had promised to David that he would establish an eternal house for David, an eternal kingdom, even an eternal king. But all of those things, all of those things were in jeopardy because of the actions of the nation of Israel. They had abandoned Yahweh, and everything now looked impossible. The promises are still promises, but how in the world would God bring them apart or bring them about? You know, from a human standpoint, the greatest king of Israel would have been who? Would have been who? Just think about this for a moment. From a human standpoint, the greatest king of Israel would have been who? What do you think? How many would say, I heard a couple out there, how many would say Solomon? How many would say David? How many would say King Saul? Okay, how many would say Josiah? Okay, I thought I'd throw out that one. <laughs> you know, from a human standpoint, the greatest king of Israel, hands down, was Solomon. Solomon had the most control, the most respect, the most money, the most land. Solomon was, was completely and totally in charge. Uh, one of the reasons that we don't view it that way is because the Bible goes to great pains to help us realize that Solomon was not great. And why was Solomon not great? Because his heart had turned from God. But you think about how that is a perspective of faith, right? That from an outside perspective, and you look at like what, what's going on in Israel, and you would say, you know, now that is a place that God's blessing. Okay, now we, we face this all the time, even in America, don't we? Um, where we say, okay, how do you know the blessing of God? And the way you know the blessing of God is, what? If you see all these physical manifestations of blessing? Okay, and we know that that's not true. We know it's not true. But yet it is so easy to see it that way. And Israel was in the same situation. Solomon, everything was going well. Everything looked marvelous. And it's only from the pages of scripture that we find out that there was a cancer within. And that cancer was found within the heart of Solomon. And it was transferred to the heart of Israel. Um, and it was devastating. And so we would actually say, from a biblical understanding, the greatest king of Israel, other than King Jesus, was David. And it's why. Because he was a man after God's own heart. And scripture makes that point again and again and again. And it argues it. Even though David's kingdom, compared to Solomon's, was small. Even though his influence was meager. But he loved God and he followed God. And so scripture pounds it into us. And so as, as scripture readers, we go, well, I think David probably had the biggest kingdom. But if we were only looking at Israel, there would be no question. No question. Uh, we would say David kind of began things, but it's like, man, some of these kings did some amazing stuff, and Solomon would be at the top of that pile. Now, what does this all relate to for Haggai? Well, they're in a huge problem uh, because Solomon was the pinnacle, and since Solomon, 
it was a sharp decline until now everything was gone. And the question is, how, how is God going to restore all of this? How, how, does, how is God going to fulfill his promises? Um, does God even remember that he made these promises? Is this part of God fulfilling his promises? Because everything is going down, 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 down. How is God possibly going to solve this? What are the next steps? And we know the surprising turn that things took with the birth, the life, the death, and then the resurrection of Jesus, of how God used the family of Abraham to bless all the nations. You know, we sit here this morning because of that promise. We stand blessed because of that promise. Um, but this is part of the early part of that story. Um, this continues to point towards that glorious future. Uh, and so where does this fit in the redemptive arc? We're not to Jesus yet, obviously, um, but they're in that spot where they need the hope of something that's going to change to bring about the promises that God had made. That's where we're at. Now let me ask this question. What can we learn about God through Haggai? Uh, and we're going to identify um, here a number of different things. Um, within this book, we're going to see an emphasis upon the theology of the temple. You know, what drove Haggai's urging, his relentless urging to the rebuilding of the temple, and what drove it was his, his theology of the temple, his understanding of the temple. He, he, was not, he didn't have some sort of fanatical preoccupation with architectural grandeur. Um, he wasn't saying what we really need is have a great building again. Uh, that's not what drove it. It was his theology of the Lord that framed his call for appropriate submission to the will of a sovereign God. Uh, that he said, you know what we really need? We need the presence of God. That if, if we need anything, we don't need greater economic help. We don't need a building. We don't need walls as much as we need God. And that's why the temple was so important. The temple was just a building. You say, in the Old Testament, the temple was just a building? We say that now. The church is the people, not the building, right? And you say, in the Old Testament, they felt the same way? And I would say, Haggai did. The temple was about the presence of God. And so his call to rebuild the temple was a call to invite God back into their lives, to bow their knee before a sovereign God. The temple was essential because God himself was essential. And so that's why we see Haggai 1.13. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. That's the goal. That's what they're after. Boy, the application to us at this point is huge. Because, dear friends, we need the same thing. Uh, and sometimes that means building different things, but ultimately we ought to be focused upon that same presence of God. Theology of the temple, also theology of holiness. It was his theology of holiness that mandated the warning that an impure people were incapable of pure worship. Think about that. And impure people were incapable of pure worship. They defiled everything that they came into contact with, including worship. And so Haggai chapter 2, verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. 
You know, the issue was not that they needed to try harder. The issue is they needed someone to purify them. The temple was so crucial because it was going to be there that God was going to bring about that purification. We also see a theology of revelation. It was Haggai's theology of the revelatory prophetic word that stimulated his demands for that kind of an appropriate response. And that appropriate response had to come from a lethargic and a self-centered people. The people of Haggai's day were, if I could put it bluntly, lazy. And they were selfish. And Haggai came alongside and he ultimately said, you need to change your mindset. And in spite of their disobedience, they were a divinely chosen nation. Uh, and so he relied, I didn't put the verse up here, but he relied upon the prophetic word to speak into their lives. And I would say this is such a wonderful truth about the word of God. It has the power to enliven a lethargic people. It has the power uh, to convict a selfish heart. We also learn about a theology of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. You know, it was the theology of human responsibility that formed the base of his, of his urgent call to the people. Haggai doesn't show up and say, God's going to do a work, you don't have to do nothing. He rather says, you need to take action. Over and over again, he says, consider your ways, consider your ways. He's calling the people to action. But it's also uh, the flip side of that. It's also his theology of divine sovereignty that caused him to believe that Yahweh controls both nature and humans. And so we see him working in the life of Cyrus, and we see him working in the life of individuals as well. You know, I think it's also noteworthy for us to recognize that God himself utilizes questions in his prophecies. I do love this. You know, we're reading through Haggai, and we see him asking questions of the people. So God's giving a prophecy, and he's asking them a question. And you say, what's the purpose of that? It's a bit curious. Um, Haggai's not the only prophet, minor prophet to use, utilize questions but why does God do that? Why doesn't God just say this? Listen, I am God. You are not. Do this and stop asking questions. Does that sound like a phrase that any dads around here use, right? Maybe you say, I don't say I'm God. You say, I am the dad. <laughs> I want you to obey and stop asking questions. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't do that with us? Isn't it interesting that God actually invites the questions? Isn't it interesting that here in the book of Haggai, God is asking questions to generate responses. Um, he's actually causing them to think, and it, and it goes to the heart of who we are, of how God made us. God made us so that we would have, have both the capacity and the drive to know and therefore to do. Do you know what God is not interested in? He is not interested in obedience for obedience's sake. Friends, he wants you to think so that then you can obey. Uh, and we must be a people that are willing to embrace that. God made us in such a way uh, that we might genuinely understand what God is calling us to do and then be motivated to do that. You know, in some ways, these questions provide a bit of an exchange between the prophet um, and the people. Uh, and it causes uh, this, this generation of genuine thought. 
uh, obedience grows out of right thinking and right feeling. Um, and if we are in the habit of simply saying, saying, hey, tell me what to do and then I'll do it, then what happens uh, when we are on our own? Well, we don't know what to do. What happens when a leader that we're following is gone? Then we don't, we don't know what to do. Um, and so scripture never approaches it that way. It always calls us to say, you need to think about this right and you need to feel rightly about this um, so that you can act rightly. And I think this keeps us from embracing either legalism on one hand, where it's like, I'm just going to obey these rules. And you say, why are we obeying that rule again? And you say, be quiet. It's a rule. <laughs> and you go, okay, but can you show me in scripture? And it's like, that, I listen. Pastor so-and-so said, or, you know, this is just what we've always done, or, right? And so, and it's like, we can't live there. We have to be willing to say, why? And there's nothing to be scared of there. Because scripture tells us everything. And so it keeps us from that, and it keeps us from the other side. It keeps us from legalism, and it keeps us from license. Because on license, you have this idea that it doesn't really matter. It's all covered by grace. And so I don't have to do anything. Um, and if I don't live rightly, it's not a huge deal. Uh, but that's a complete abandonment of that which God calls us to do. And so that's a non-thinking position as well. Uh, and it calls us to something different. We ought to be in that middle. We need to think deeply and clearly and regularly about life and godliness. And Haggai is a wonderful example of this because what Haggai does is he challenges the people to think. And he says, you need to understand why you're doing this. And ultimately, uh, it drives us to delight in God. And genuine obedience demands delight. If I don't delight in God, I will not obey him. Not in the way that he desires. And then another aspect of theology is that of redemption. It's his theology of the prior promises to the royal line of David that caused him to attach a special significance to Zerubbabel. Um, and we'll get into that um, in the last message. So let me ask this question then. I think it went backwards. There we go. What is the central message of Haggai? And I put two statements on there. The first is a commentator. Um, he says, the significance of the Lord's house and the setting of Israel's messianic hope. And I, I think that's a, a tremendously packed, powerful statement. There's so much there. Uh, and I'm going to break it down a little bit, right? But the significance of the Lord's house, that's the temple, in the setting of Israel's messianic hope. Uh, and so the, the, the temple was the center the, the point that everything came from, um, but yet the focus of the, temp, of the temple pointed outwards towards the hope of the Messiah. Uh, and this was everything to Israel. Um, so I would say that is probably the best central message uh, that is there. Let me put it in a more colloquial terms and tie it to the New Testament. I would say it's the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's the message of Haggai. Because like men and women of Haggai's day, we need to consider our ways because of the tendency of all of us to seek first the kingdom of self, not the kingdom of God. And when we seek the kingdom of self, we deprioritize the kingdom of God. 
preoccupation with self, it prioritizes our human needs, our desires. It downgrades the plans and priorities of Almighty God. And, and that kind of thought patterns, it leads to actions that focus first on meeting all of our human desires, and then it offers to God whatever is left. And we say, I have to prioritize myself and my family first, don't I? And I would say, have you heard Jesus? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Isn't that a passage? Isn't that set in a context? Uh, in Matthew chapter 6, isn't that set in a context of like basic necessities of life? And he's calling us to that. And I would say Haggai is doing the same thing. So what's a good illustration of this truth? Um, let, me, uh, let me try to illustrate it this way. Um, a good pet versus a not good pet. How many of you have pets? How many of you have pets? How many of you, um, how many of you love your pets? Amen? Amen. Most of the same hands went up. Uh, what is the primary, uh, let me uh, turn the phrase here a little bit. What is the primary purpose of man? How many, uh, how many of you are catechized out here? What is the primary purpose of man? Man's primary purpose is? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay, what is the primary purpose of a dog? You don't do that catechism? Uh, what is the primary purpose of a dog? To glorify man and enjoy him for as long as he lives. <laughs> Amen? I mean, that seems reasonable. Um, that that is uh, their primary purpose. But what if, what if your dog does not do that? We had a friend who was describing how their dog had separation anxiety from one of the members of the household. And that member left, and that dog came apart. Uh, and so that dog began to defecate all over the house, lost control of its bowels all over the house. And it's like, that is a problem. That is not good. I love animals, but I don't think I can stand for that. <laughs> it's like, wow, what did you do? That's unbelievable. And he was just like, man, it was horrible. It was horrible. It's like, that sounds worse than horrible. Uh, that is not good at all. I grew up on a farm. We handled animals differently <laughs> on the farm uh, when they did not obey on that level. <laughs> I'm not saying, I'm just saying. <laughs> so if you have a pet and you're just enjoying that pet, but what if that, what if every time you enter that room, your dog leaves the room? What if, what if it nips at you when you attempt to pet him? What if it growls at you when you lay down beside him? What if it makes messes everywhere and it gnaws every piece of furniture? What if it digs at the drywall with its paws when it wants to go out? Some of you are having PTSD right now. Doesn't that affect how you view that dog? Uh, we currently have a cat. and She's a very nice cat. She keeps to herself as cats are wont to do. Uh, she determines that when the world's properly aligned, then she'll let us pet her if she thinks it's best. <laughs> Uh, and so I was outside the other, the other day, and the cat was in a, one of her favorite spots. Uh, and I came by, and as a loving master to a faithful pet, I was talking to the pet, 
and I reached down to pet the cat, and the cat attacked me and swiped at my hand with its claw and pierced my flesh. And I was, I was enraged. Um, I didn't hurt the cat. <laughs> but I was just internally, I was like, why would you do that? I've given you nothing but love and care and kindness, and yet you would do that. So let me ask you this. Do you think I was inclined to be kind to the cat? There was a wall between me and the cat. I mean, we had some business to take care of, right? It's like, I will talk to you when you apologize to me. And of course, the cat could care less. It doesn't care about me. I exist for the cat, not, me for the, not the cat for me, right? That's how the cats view life. Uh, and, and, but it was, a, it was bothersome to me, right? My heart was not turned to the cat at the moment. But if, if you have an animal that responds that way, you don't want to do anything for that animal. But imagine the reverse, that if you have an animal that's meeting all of your expectations, an animal that loves you, and this is really where most dogs live, right? Um, a dog that just loves to be in your presence and they enjoy who you are and you come home and they can't stop the tail from wagging and they're just so excited to see you. And what do you want to do for the dog? You want to give it things. Because the dog is seeking first you. It delights in your presence and because of that you pour out upon the dog. It used to be that my dear wife never liked animals. And then we got animals, and her heart softened, and now she enjoys them. And suddenly she's buying things for the cat, <laughs> which again, I grew up on the farm. That's not what you do. You don't do that. <laughs> uh, it's just hardwired in. That's not what you do. Uh, but Heather's heart is bent towards the cat, and so it's now she wants to buy these things. It's like the cat doesn't need that. Uh, the cat has no feelings. There's no emotion there. I know I'm offending some of you right now. <laughs> Um, but yet, that's how she felt. And so because the cat delighted in her and she delighted in the cat, she poured out love upon the animal. And I would say, dear friends, this is really what God is calling us to. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Delight yourself in the Lord. That is what he is after. We've all seen this illustration, haven't we? The old illustration of the rock, often used for priorities. Um, the idea is that the small sand um, are the small things that really are not that important. The larger rocks are things that are marginally important. And the big rocks are the really important things. And so the idea is that if you fill your life um, with the small things that are not that important, uh, then you won't have room for the really big things. And I would say the same principle applies uh, to our relationship uh, with God. That if we prioritize... Delighting in God first, those are the big rocks. And around everything else, around those big priorities, everything else will fit perfectly. That is the message of Haggai in short. Prioritize God, and he will take care of everything else. Man, does that seem like a big step of faith? That's exactly what God calls us to. I'm going to close this in a quick word of prayer, and then we'll turn things back over. Um, to Danny. Father, we're so thankful for your word, for the chance we have to begin to wrap our minds around what's going on um, in this wonderful book, this tremendous series of prophecies. And we desire to let them minister to our soul. May we use it this week. 
May we allow this week that we might spend time dwelling deeply and digging in um, to uh, this uh, marvelous passage so that, so that we might grow closer to you. Lord, that's our heart. That's our desire. We want that. Help us to achieve that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.